Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block. As always, we are recording this live and we will be up as a podcast shortly after its conclusion. Also, we invite anyone listening to this show to please send any feedback you may have to our email address, which is ejsshow at protonmail.com. Today, we are missing Gina, who is under the weather, and we have Mike, two Eds, and a special guest named Christopher. So with that, good afternoon and welcome. Hey, hey everybody. Guys. This is Ed. Hi, everyone. Hey, guys. Mike in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. You can tell everybody where you're from. Ed, you're from a different place. This is Ed. I mean, Christopher. From... <laughs> yes. Chris, Hamburg, Pennsylvania. In an underground bunker. In an under underground bunker. Ed, are you are you stuck on a highway in Virginia this week? Just got to check. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm in my office uh, coughing from uh, COVID. I'm officially out of quarantine, so that's good. Okay, not like Chris Cuomo out of quarantine, like real out of quarantine. I actually stayed home when I was supposed to stay home. I'm I'm a terrible person. I realized that. Okay, well, Liberty Block hosts are nothing if not law-abiding. Thinking of really? all the people I should have infected, but I didn't. Okay. Well, you know, natural immunity is the way out, Ed. So maybe if you'd infected more people, you'd have helped us get out of this pandemic faster. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to list what I think are the most important stories out there so you guys can tell me why I'm right or wrong and we can discuss whatever you like. I think the story about the documents that have come out from Veritas about proving that Fauci was lying, I think that's an incredibly important story. Um, this, this lawsuit against Madison Cawthorn and this general effort to keep Republicans from being able to run for or take office, I think is super important. The Ted Cruz business, I think, happened after last week's show, if I'm not mistaken, and we may or may not want to discuss Ted Cruz foot and mouth disease. And because I live up in up here in New York City, the story about allowing 800,000 to a million non-citizens to vote to me is a gargantuan story. And then we have this YouTube going around and other stories about empty grocery shelves in Ed P's area. So to me, those are among the five most important things going on, but I'm open to anybody's other suggestions. Ah, I think well, you, you hit on it. Um, go ahead, Ed. I was going to say, I think this week, uh, Steve, you hit the nail on the head on all those. I, I think those are the big stories of the week. Um, I don't know what you guys want to discuss first. Well, you, you got it, Ed. You got the floor. Uh. I think hmm, I think the Project Veritas story is probably the biggest story, but the Madison Cawthorn story is right up there with it. Um, OK, let's do the Veritas story for a minute. So just briefly tell everybody what you know about it and then your opinion, please. Well, the Project Veritas has has documents that it claims are authentic, which say that um, DARPA which is the group that developed, uh, was doing all the gain of function research, uh, applied to, 
I, was it the Defense Department? I, it, it applied to some government agency to, to do some of the gain of function research and they were turned down saying that it was too close to the, to the moratorium on gain of function research. So Fauci's group went and fund, financed it and funded it anyway. Um, and the documents also reveal that um, things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were known in 2018 to 2019 to be effective in treatment um, and that uh, that information was suppressed. It also taught the, the documents also purport to reveal that um, that, that the, uh, the virus isn't really a virus. Um, we've got a, a scientist on the show who can probably explain it a little better than I can. Uh, Ed Powell, maybe you can jump in on that, but uh, it's not really a virus. It's something a little bit different. Um, and that the, the vaccines are actually sort of like the virus. So injecting them into people is really just spreading the virus further. Um, I didn't really understand that all that well. Uh, again, maybe Ed, you can sort of elaborate on that. But I think the main import of the story is that this isn't really a Chinese virus. This is an American virus. This is a Fauci virus. It was developed by Americans. It was unleashed by Americans. And not just any old Americans, but the same Americans that are locking us down and imposing their draconian uh, restrictions on our liberty uh, are the ones who are responsible for creating and releasing this virus and or this bioweapon. And that to me, that's the big story that uh, they did that uh, and that they know what the treatments are and they refuse to allow, allow the treatments to be spoken about, let alone prescribed. So just for our listeners who don't speak Greek, ivermectin is the Greek word for horse dewormer. So there should be no mistake here about that. I got to tell you, Ed, I did not follow it. I did not know all of those points about it. And I think this is one of those stories that is so horrific that we cannot allow it to be true. What do you mean we can't allow it to be true? It is true. But well, we, they're, they're we gonna, absolutely they're gonna do... have, it's like, it's worse than UFOs. It's worse than JFK conspiracy theories. It's, it's so bad that if people were to believe this, there could be, God forbid, another January 6th. I think we're headed there anyway. <laughs> I'm rather black I'm rather black I have to say, I read, I read the Murphy letter. I'm not 100% convinced it's uh, authentic. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reserving judgment on this letter. I know Project Veritas has um, a very good rep reputation for not being wrong. Um, it's, it seems unlikely, that doesn't mean it's, it's false, but um, the idea of basically creating a virus to infect bats um, to kind of make them uh, immune to these sorts of, of viruses uh, so that they would, you know, kill them and not, not carry them. I guess, I, I don't know whether that makes biological sense, but it, I can see why it might make sense to somebody who wanted government money. Um, I was not able to read the, the enclosed proposal in detail. 
I, I don't know. I, I think that it's fairly well established already that, uh, that the virus was engineered and that it was funded at least in part by uh, NIH and, and NIAID. Right. Uh, I think that we kind of knew that already before this leak. Well, they were scrambling from the beginning to cover up their involvement in yeah, yeah. research. So they, so, they I mean, knew I it think, was at, at stake. <laughs> I, I think we all kind of I think we all kind of knew that. Um, but I'm not I'm not ready at this time exactly to say what I why I don't quite think this is is right. But it, mm -hmm. you know, it might be. Um, it might be. I just well, I don't. I don't know. This isn't the first source to come out. I mean, I've heard it elsewhere that this was not a typical virus, that it was probably man-made because it doesn't attack us in the same way that other viruses do. Um, so, I mean, it kind of fits with that narrative. Uh, the other big issue here is that Fauci has, again, been proven to be a liar. He lied before Congress. He lied when Rand Paul was questioning him. Um, you know, obviously it deserves to be held accountable for all of that. We know he probably never will, but it sort of is ironic that that's the guy that's in charge of everything now, like Ed said earlier, that the same person who may well be responsible did his part to, you know, to fund that research and cause this to happen is the guy that we've been looking at for a year and a half telling us what to do. It just, <laughs> it really is fascinating. Fascinating is one word for it. Mm. Infuriating. <laughs> I don't I don't know how these people I don't know how I don't know. Partially I, I'm kind of I'm at the point where accountability is just lost. And I don't know how we get that back. I, I, I don't think we're going to get it back. I mean, we've discussed quite often on, on the show, um, it's been a theme of the show, how the elites get away with everything. They're never held accountable for anything that they do, and especially if they're leftists. But if they're a bureaucrat like Fauci, um, you know, hell will freeze over before he's held accountable. I'll just say that they're pretty far out on a limb on a lot of issues. Um, they're not gonna hold themselves responsible and I don't know that, that people are ready to revolt into a civil war. But on the other hand, I think that people are, are really, really angry about what's going on. And if the Project Veritas report is true and it's, it's confirmed and people understand what it really means, I really think there's going to be some hell to pay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that sort of segues into the Madison Cawthorn story, because I think I think once people understand what's going on with that, I think that people are going to be pretty angry about that. And I think people are already I've seen, uh, you know, in the you know last week we had our January 6th show and, you know, we, we went past the anniversary of that day. Um, so there were lots of stories about it. And from what I've read, insofar as there's legitimate polling on the issue, most Americans, even a good number of Democrats don't think that January 6th was an insurrection. And 
The Democrats are trying to exploit it the way the Nazis exploited the, the Reichstag fire. And at some point, they're going to overstep. Um, they're overstepping on a lot of things. Um, one of the things, you know, one of the constant refrains that I've been making on this show is that they're overstepping so far and with such utter disregard for what for the fact that the people don't support them, that it seems to me like they have to have some plan up their sleeves to bypass the people. Um, whether that's true or not, I, I mean, I still think that's what's going on. Um, but if it's not what's going on, or, or even if it is, at some point, the people are just going to revolt against them. And, and by revolt, I don't necessarily mean an armed revolt, but um, the Democrat Party is so far out on a limb right now that um, they, they almost have no choice but to be really repressive and to, and to go all in for their dictatorship. Because if, if they do go forward with a free election, they're going to get so slaughtered that I don't see how they're going to recover anytime soon. I mean, the press just continues to gaslight no matter what comes out. The press and, and the Democrats are just out there telling us that we're crazy, that there's nothing there, that move on, that it's all lies, et cetera. And which leads me to one of my refrains, how do you continue to coexist with people who literally live with a different reality? In their reality, everything Fauci says is true. And I don't know how we do that because the tension, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, the fights on the airplanes, et cetera, et cetera, the tensions are just being ratcheted up so high. I don't know how we avoid literally killing each other or spitting at each other on airplanes. I wanted to ask you guys, do you ever remember the Republicans going after efforts to nationalize elections and do these kinds of things? And the reason I ask is because I saw a comment on Facebook again about, you know, I'm no apologist for the Republicans, but it was another one side is as bad as the other side kind of thing in regards to elections. But I don't ever remember the Republicans doing anything like this. Do you? I don't recall it. Well, well yeah, after the Civil War during Reconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Republicans did it then, but uh, I'm not... Not since then. I yeah. think I don't think they've done it on a national level, but Chris, I'm still convinced that the Republicans do it on a more local level and that that's the reason why they're not so interested in election integrity, because despite the fact that the Democrats are obvious cheaters and everyone can see it, uh, I think that the Republican establishment type candidates cheat just as much against Republican candidates and I don't think that the Republican establishment wants that to be made public. Um, and if anything, I I'm guessing the Democrats know that. And they're, they're probably blackmailing them behind the scenes and saying, if you try and expose what we're doing, you're going to be exposed even worse. Yeah. And the spotlight's going to be on you because our media, our media allies are going to make sure that the light is shined on you. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I do think that the Republicans cheat. I think that the cheating is almost as bad as, as the Democrats. It's just not. You know, yeah, that's that, that I, I, can't possibly be true. <laughs> Even if that is true, I mean, to Christopher's point, you know, the leftists are obviously out for total power uh, for one party rule. And that's what they're doing when it comes to that election bill to nationalize the election. Republicans aren't out there trying to totally undermine the republic. You know, and, and turn you know turn this into an authoritarian state. 
I'm not saying that the Republicans, I'm not saying that Republicans have, you know, an occasional Republican hasn't voted in both New York and Florida. I'm sure that happens. Um, But if you, if you want to cheat in onesies and twosies, um, you know, anybody, anybody can do that. But if you want to cheat on an industrial scale, you need an organization. And the organization has to be bound uh, by a code of omerta. And to get that code, you generally speaking need either an an extremely strong ideological um, commitment to one another, uh, like the communists do, or, or you need a very strong sort of ethnic, racial or ethnic solidarity. Um, and I, I don't see either of those in the Republican Party. So I, I don't see cheating on an industrial scale even possible in the Republican Party because they don't have the two things that are necessary to get it done. They do, Ed. I think that ideologically they're, they're anti-conservative. They're anti, anti-liberty. That's their, their agenda. Um, you know, why is, you know, why is um, McCarthy the minority leader instead of Jim Jordan or Thomas Massey or, or some other good Republican? Why is Mitch McConnell the leader, the Senate minority leader, instead of Rand Paul or Ted Cruz or some Republican? Well, we, I think we know the answer to that, right? I mean, the answer is obvious, is, is the, the leadership in both the House and the Senate is in control of the money. And so when the, you know, somebody wants to retire from that position, right? Um, but that, that's they, true, they hand Andrew, the money that, over to their, to the people who, um, who they want to. And but so that begs the question of how they got there, especially in light of the fact that there is a real breach between the Republican base, the typical Republican voter, and the Republican leadership um, in a way that's different than the Democrat Party. Although I think the Democrat Party is starting to see that a little bit because the, the party leadership has gone so far left that I think that they're leaving some of their, their, their base behind. Uh, but in the Republican Party, it's, it's obvious that you, you meet the typical Republican voter on the street and None of them likes Mitch McConnell. None of them likes McCarthy. None of them likes any of the uh, any of their leaders. And they all want to know where when are we going to get Republicans that will fight and represent us? Um, That's kind of what I was saying, that the leadership in both the House and the Senate is not a democracy. It's 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 like. It's almost like a monarchy, like, you know, how did Queen Elizabeth get to be the head of state of Great Britain? Well, she was the daughter of the previous king and that and that's kind of how it happens in the house and the senate is very very difficult um for to overthrow the current leadership and their specific choice to take over from them because they control all the money and money is all important in you know when you look money at like is, house elections, money is important no i kind of disagree with you money is not all important it is it is maybe the mother's milk of politics, and it's certainly a vital function, but you can have a lot of money and still 
blow a campaign. I mean, look at Jeb Bush in 2016. Uh, yeah, of course. And Eric Cantor and whatnot. But I'm saying that unless you have sort of an independent base of financial support, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, she's not going to lose because she's going to have plenty of money. Um, but if you're like Joe Schmo, who, who never, nobody's ever heard of from Missouri or Arkansas or something, you, you can't, I mean, you can't raise any money. There's nobody to raise it from. Yeah, but I mean, but the, well, I mean, Mike, you, you and I have been in the trenches in New Jersey. I mean, there is a real ideological opposition within the Republican Party leadership to liberty ideas and conservative Republican ideas. And I mean, maybe the ideology, and I put that in scare quotes, is really an anti-ideology, but um, they are united. They are very they are very opposed to a liberty agenda. They're very opposed to rolling back the welfare state or even forget about rolling it back, or even challenging any of the premises of it, even in the face of obvious failures. I mean, it's why they won't challenge on COVID. They won't challenge on, on anything. They just, they, they don't oppose government control. Um, and the average Republican voter does, I think. If that's the case, where does that leave us? <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it leaves us in a precarious place as long as the Democrats are united in trying to establish a dictatorship and the Republicans are sort of disunited because there's a breach between their leadership and their voters. That's where I, that's I think there's of, a breach kind of why between we're here. a lot of the Democratic uh, base and, and their party leadership, too. I think they hate Pelosi. I think they hate uh, uh, Schumer, even though both Pelosi and Schumer have been pandering to them. I think they absolutely uh, loathe them. That's why the Justice Democrats came up with the, uh, you know, the idea of, of hiring actors to, uh, you know, like AOC to sort of represent them. And I, I, I tend to think, you know, the Republicans ought to do the same, whether it's actors or, uh, you know, real people is, is unimportant. Just someone to agitate. And I think the only people who are agitating are, MTG and um, you know two or three others, just like in the Democratic Party. But at least MTG will get reelected. I don't know about Lauren Boebert. She might not get reelected. You never know. Colorado is tough, and she doesn't have as much independent support um, as uh, MTG does. But uh, you know, look how Ted Cruz donned the pussy hat when it came to. Uh, January 6th. He was just, uh, it's just embarrassing. Why did, why did he do it? That's a good question. I think a better question is why did he go on to Tucker and then try and defend it? Well, cause he, I don't think he's a coward in that sense. You know, I, I think, but it's not, that's not being a cow. I'm not saying why wasn't he a coward? I'm saying how foolish and how stupid did he have to be? Did he really think he was going to BS his way through that interview? I mean, I don't know. The only way I think of it is that he thought that would be the only chance he had of getting out of it and didn't think Tucker would go after him that strongly. Tucker was brutal. I mean, Tucker yeah. started off the interview by saying, you lied. <laughs> that was a lie. Now explain yourself. And like he lost, he lost before he even said a word. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, if he, smart, if, what was his choice? What else? I, how does he look if he doesn't go on? I mean, he, he already dug the hole for himself. He, Guys, a whole bunch of us. I think that, like Steve said, that was his only choice. 
what is that something he really believes? Has he changed because he's in Congress for so long? I think he's changed. I, no, I think that uh, someone, um, someone who I follow, who I don't remember, uh, wrote down all 25 times that uh, Ted Cruz has uh, has said that it was a terrorist attack uh, over the last year. Yeah, uh, it wasn't new. Um, his former chief of staff, Amanda Carpenter, wrote an article on that. Yeah, Amanda Carpenter was um, was on, I think it was on the Potatoes show. And uh, I saw her interview and it's just embarrassing. Um, she works for the, the Bulwark now. I don't know. I don't know whether don't know. he got away with it for a long time. It didn't I, I, bubble you know, up to I, the surface. And it, there he was in a hearing on the anniversary of J6. And oh, it's like all of a sudden front and center. And. That's what happened. Obviously, yeah. it depends, you know, on what the word is, is right. It depends on what you mean by terrorism, right? Terrorism is generally uh, an attack against civilians. So in that sense, uh, Cruz's statement was like, well, anytime anybody attacks a cop, I call it terrorism. Well, that's just not true. Cops aren't civilians. I mean, you shouldn't attack cops. Nobody should do that. And it's bad and that's a crime, but it's not terrorism. So um, I don't quite know why he thinks that way unless i think people in the regime think any attack on the regime is terrorism any attack for the regime or by the regime is not so, you so that's why sincere. Antifa, I, I so that's why antifa is not terrorism and january 6 was because Tifa's so you're a, trying to explain it in terms of him being having a sincere belief i think he's just full of crap and i think that that was a calculated statement that he thought would, would benefit him and I think that having said it 25 times over the last year and not being called out on it, each time he said it, he became more and more emboldened that he would never get called out on it. Yeah. And, and there I was this whole blue line, you know, versus, you know, BLM versus blue lives matter. And, and again, I, you know, I'm no apologist for the police. I think they spend a lot of their time arresting people for not wearing masks. And so, I mean, I don't know the timeline of when he said it. But clearly the narrative has progressively changed on J6 as we've gone through the year. I think all of us kind of condemned it at first, but now after Tucker did his report on it and everything like that, and the fact that these guys have been held in, in that jail in such a horrible fashion, totally un-American, no charges, no trial, everything. And we know all this to say it on the anniversary <laughs> of that date when so many in the uh, you know, in the base of the Republican Party um, now feel that there's in, an injustice there. It, it is people. interesting because it, is like, it, it makes a difference. It, it, it's like we're like six months ahead of Tucker and he's like six months ahead of everybody else. And so, I mean, like we knew it was a lab leak back in April or May of 2020 when Yuri Dagan came out with his very well-reasoned article um, on, Stubbs, on Substack. And as far as the January 6th things, I mean, if it wasn't, we knew they were being tortured because we were getting uh, the January 6th people in the, in the jail because we were, we were reading alternative sources. I, I don't think Ted Cruz has. I, I, I don't think if it wasn't for MTG publicizing uh, and a couple of other congressmen, the fact that they were being tortured, that anyone in Congress would even know. I mean, we would know because we pay attention to non-mainstream sources. 
like I said, we're, we're six months ahead of everyone. There, there's all sorts of things um, like the agent's provocateur who, who led, uh, you know, who, who encouraged people to, Perhaps. to go into the Capitol. This was covered in a number of, of I, I would say, YouTube videos, but not YouTube, uh, bitchid videos where, you know, people had just looked at the imagery and, and had come up with the idea, hey, this Ray Epps guy, what the hell is he doing? He's here and then he's here and then he's here and then he's on top of the tower and he's with a bullhorn and go, 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 go. And he was on the uh, most wanted list and then he was off the most wanted list. And like, and then there's two or three other people who are, you know, on the list and off the list and they did, they were seen doing criminal acts. And it's like, we know the FBI is incompetent, but are they this incompetent that, you know, this, we know this person, we know this person, we just figured it out because we're guys on the internet and they were really hurting people and it's on video and we saw the video. Can the FBI not know about this? And then they're all kind of unraveled. And we kind of all knew this like near the end of last year because we've been paying attention. But, you know, Tucker, uh, Tucker gets it, but he's like three months late. And Cruz is like three or four months after that. Well, You're maybe, positing yeah. that Cruz actually was unaware of the information that the rest of us have. And is that his fault? Is that his staff's fault? Well, I think, you know, I think both Cruz, I mean, it's very funny. I mean, if you read Scott Atlas's book about his time in the White House, he is very clear about how completely unaware the people in the White House were, completely unaware of what's out of what actually is going on, including Trump, but primarily because Everybody under him was unaware. And so all he got was bad data. And I think Cruz is the same. I mean, if you have the Amanda Carpenters of the world, if that's your choice of people to advise you, how are you ever going to know what's going on? If you don't actually- I gotta stop you with one of my pet peeves. I cannot stand it when governors and senators and congressmen say, well, people come over to me all the time and talk about A, B, and C. B, S. You can't get within 10 yards of anybody in Congress, the Senate, or governor's houses, unless you may be in New Hampshire, maybe in Wyoming. Try getting anywhere near any of these people and saying anything close to reality. I even remember at the Cruz events, forget you didn't get close to him. If you went over to Heidi and said more than good morning, they shooed you away. So they are so unbelievably insulated from reality and then they have the nerve to say, people are coming over to me all the time. I just had to get that rant out. <laughs> well, I think we found the, uh, the tagline for our show now. We're six months ahead of everybody else. Yeah, six months ahead of everybody. But uh, apparently, we- uh, just real quick, I mean, Ray Epps testified today in front of Congress, and he swore he's not with the FBI. So, you know, uh, the kook uh, conspiracy nuts out there uh, have been proven wrong. And, well, let's uh, be honest. The, the, Cruz- me- the media is jumping all over that. De- debunked. We're pretty sure Cruz uses Twitter, for instance. Does he? You know, we're pretty sure he does. I, you know, it could be that his staff does, but it, we're pretty sure he does. But does he read it? Does he read Twitter? No, he doesn't have time. No. And and does he read Telegram? Does he know who to follow on Telegram to get? When was the last time Cruz I mean, spoke to a real human being? It's been a while. I mean, he may have Twitter, but you know, he's got a staffer manning 
Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I mean we might how, go on there now. now because now. otherwise, we don't have an explanation for how he could possibly be so politically obtuse unless we see it the way you're well, seeing Again, I think he's gotten lazy and comfortable. But that's so unbelievably obtuse to think if you piss off your entire base like this. I mean, yeah, he wants to run for president, but he didn't realize he just chopped off his legs. I don't well, know. I how much that, did he? I think How much that people like him think that. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. No, no. I was just going to say, how, how much did he win that Senate election by the last time around? Maybe he thinks he's got to start to pander to the middle more. I don't know. Well, and I also think that someone like Cruz can make the calculation that I can piss off these conservative supporters because they're going to come back to me. They're and, not. When you got a DeSantis out there, he's worthless as president. Uh, I don't, you don't have Cruz, to convince me on that. I don't think Cruz has a shot at this. Point. I mean, I just I this is an incredibly smart human being who, as Tucker says, is incredibly, you know, he's possibly the most eloquent person out there for a very long time. And to be this unbelievably stupid, I don't watch Tucker nearly as much as you guys do. Were you surprised how um, strong, almost belligerent Tucker was? Not at all. I'm a big Tucker fan. I think that he does tough interviews. That was uh, beyond thought... tough. Ed. That was that was talking down to a senator. That was he ripped it. He ripped Asa Hutchinson a couple months ago for for vetoing a bill blocking puberty blockers to children in Arkansas. He, he gives some tough interviews. I I don't see Tucker as yeah. a as a cream puff interviewer. I mean, sometimes he... sometimes his interviews are. He uses the guest almost as a prop to get his point out. Uh, and he's not really fishing for information. He's really making a point and getting and just asking the interview interviewee to agree with him. But um, I think yeah. he gives pretty good interviews. That, that didn't surprise me. Um, and, you know, Cruz, Cruz stuck his foot in his mouth a year ago when he ran to Mexico during the, you know, during the, the cold spell in Texas, which that in itself wasn't sticking his foot in his mouth. But then running back a day later and then saying, well, you know, we had the plane booked and, you know, it was stupid. And I mean, it was the same kind of, oh, it was a stupid calculation. I mean, you would think that he'd learn from his mistakes, but he, he doesn't, he, or he didn't. Um, you know, that was a pretty stupid thing that he did a year ago. And, you know, he's got to learn sometimes the best thing to do is shut up and let it go away. I mean, sometimes by trying to explain yourself, it makes it worse. And, and each time he's explained himself, the last couple of times he's made a dumb move, he's wound up digging his hole deeper instead of getting himself out. And also, is he trying to play both sides of this because he's still in Congress arguing the other side of January 6th? Well, I don't know what other side he's arguing. I mean, on January 6th, he was there challenging the results. What other side? Yeah, so he's also about? arguing, you know, wasn't Ray Epps involved and weren't there feds involved in stoking this? So it's almost like he's playing both sides. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, you and I, Steve, were on his campaign in 2016, and I was just over the over the moon in love with with his candidacy. Um, and and I still remember his his speech in Cleveland when he refused to endorse Trump, and he said, you know, vote your conscience. You know, vote. You know, you know, vote for who you you know vote your conscience and. And I remember on the day that he, the night that he gave that speech, I thought it was brilliant. And then I thought about it and, and I've watched it since. And now I look at it as this pandering, weaselly, 
refusal to take a side that that I've hated in politicians all my life. Um, so it doesn't surprise me if he's trying to take both sides, because I think he's been doing that. And I think he started doing that at least uh, at least at that speech, you know, in Cleveland, when, you know, when when the Trump people wound up booing him off the stage. Um, so. Yeah, very sad. All right. You want to Ed, you want to talk a little bit more about the Cawthorn thing, about what's happening? Sure. I mean, we talked about, you know, I, I brought it up last week. I knew this was coming. Uh, Mark Elias, the super lawyer who's representing the Democrats, you know, f- across the country, and he's been representing them at least since since being the, the lead counsel for the Hillary campaign in 16. Uh, they are filing election law challenges uh, to disqualify Republicans from being on the ballot on based on Section three of the 14th Amendment, which says that anyone, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but if you were a member of Congress or, you know, a member of a, a senator, a member of Congress, a House of Representatives member uh, or a member of a state legislature, and you took an oath to the United States and then you engaged in insurrection or rebellion, you cannot run for office unless Congress by a two thirds majority disqu- uh, removes the disability. And they're, they're making the argument that anyone who is in any way associated, well, I shouldn't say in any way, who is associated with the January 6th events is a quote, insurrectionist, unquote, and therefore not not eligible to run. Um, I think it's ridiculous, but I think what's the most ridiculous about it at this point is the total lack of response from the Republicans and not just the, the official party movement, but where are our conservative groups to just fight back? You know, we spent all last summer watching Democrats torch cities, including federal property like the federal courthouse in Portland, uh, attacking the, the White House, attacking the park adjacent to the White House, you know, offering to pay uh, bail, you know, Kamala Harris and others paying bail for these BLM rioters. The same kinds of election challenges should be filed by conservative groups to disqualify Democrats. And, you know, someone's going to say, well, that's not insurrection. Duh, that's exactly the point. January 6th wasn't an insurrection either. They're using it anyway. The only thing these people ever understand is equal and greater force in response. And you've got to respond with the same level of force that they're throwing at us. They're throwing force at us. We need to fight back with force. We can't just, you know, I, I don't understand. There's, there's total silence. I mean, the Republican Party is not saying anything. And, uh, and, and conservative groups aren't saying anything. Cawthorn is actually my representative here in North Carolina. Uh, I know Gina, who is not with us today, specifically reached out to the North Carolina uh, GOP chairman, Mark Watley, and asked him, what are you guys doing to, to defend Madison Cawthorn? And to my knowledge, I don't know that she's gotten a response. Um, it, it's really sad and, and beyond sad, it's pathetic. You know, there, the, the there Democrats a, are engaging in an insurrection of their own, and the Republicans are just not able to respond, and conservative groups are not responding either. I agree with There is with a little Ed bit of subtlety, I think, just uh, in the law, right? Because the 14th Amendment said, you know, anybody who engaged in uh, rebellion can't have, a, have an office except if their disability re- was removed. But apparently, and 
again, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, apparently this is not self-enforcing. So what ended up happening was uh, one of the reconstruction um, legislatures in North Carolina passed a law that implemented uh, this amendment with a very, very low bar for trying to assert and adjudicate whether someone was or was not part of the rebellion. And that Cawthorn has gotten um, caught up in not a weird 14th Amendment case that no one has ever seen before and doesn't make any sense, but in a specific Reconstruction era law in North Carolina uh, forced on North Carolinians by the military government to prevent, to, to make it easy to prevent people who uh, were officers of the Confederacy from running for office again. That is my understanding of it. And I think that if that is true, and all I know is what I read on the internet, then I think Cawthorn is in serious trouble because um, the, it's a very, very low bar. I'm not aware of that statute, but I would say that I don't believe that the states, the state legislatures have any power to enforce federal requirements for, for ballot access for federal office. I think that's a federal question, and if the if the if the members of the House have not expelled Cawthorn, I think that is to me dispositive that he's not an insurrectionist. I think it's up to the members of the House and the Senate to either expel a member or to refuse to seat a member who wins. Um, I do not believe that state legislatures have the power constitutionally to uh, implement. Article, uh, section three of the 14th Amendment. If Congress wants to pass a statute that implements it, section five of the 14th Amendment gives Congress that power to explain what those, you know, what, what those requirements for states might be. But I do not believe states have any jurisdiction and power whatsoever to interpret section three of the of the 14th Amendment for the for for keeping people off the ballot. I just don't think that. Chris, you want to say something? Well, I mean, the bigger picture here, I mean, it's, I mean, this could, it could be chalked up to political games, but I think it's bigger than that. And it's, it's part and parcel of uh, the fact that, you know, these left-wing radical Democrats have become a bunch of fascists and, you know, they're going to do anything that they can to continue to um, persecute people on the right and get them out of the way. And this is just one other tactic that they're using. And while it might not work this time, this is the way they move the ball down the field. To okay, me, this might, is exactly take... akin. Sorry, Mike. That's all right. This is akin to Pelosi and Saki and Biden himself assuring us all last year, all, all throughout 2021 until August of 2021, that Vaccine mandates were not on the table. They're not constitutional. They're not within the power of the federal government. And then on a dime, boom, they change. And from their perspective, they don't care whether it's constitutional. 
they'll just make they, they cloak their illegality in a form yeah. of legality and they put the burden on us to sue them well exactly probably, the same probably, way that well, go ahead. let me just i'm almost done i'll let you go mike but it, they did the same biden did the exact same thing when he renewed the the uh rent moratorium he knew it was unconstitutional and he even said by the time it's probably unconstitutional but by the time the courts strike it down it'll be two months three months down the road and people have gotten some relief and that's what they yeah. need right now and that's just what well, they do and 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 to make make it clear i'm not just picking on democrats Republicans have done that too. George W. Bush did the exact same thing with McCain-Feingold, where he, in his, if you look at his, uh, his memo, presidential memo signing that law, he said this is most of this is going to be unconstitutional, but I'll leave it to the courts to figure out what is yeah. and what isn't constitutional. So you know we have you know that, but that's a that this is a tactic of the Democrat Party to just tie us down and fatigue us by making us litigate and spend money, time, and energy defending things that don't that are not honest disputes. And while we're doing fighting there, they're going to be pushing the John Lewis bill, you know, voting rights bill in, in the Congress. Yeah. So that's what's so, going on. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Ed, just remind me again, that petition was sent submitted to who? About your congressman? Uh, to the State Board of Elections. OK, so I did okay. find the law. All right. It, I, I did find the law and it's. Uh, North Carolina section 163-127.2 and 127.5. 127.2 says a challenge to a candidate may be filed with the Board of Elections through a verified affidavit by a challenger based on reasonable specification or belief of the facts stated. Grounds for filing a challenge are that the candidate does not meet the constitutional or statutory qualifications for the office. And then 27. 127.5, the burden of proof shall be upon the candidate who must show by a preponderance of evidence of the record as a whole that he or she is qualified to be a candidate for the office. Um, and uh, talks about residency. But basically, how does one prove with a preponderance of evidence that you are not part of an insurrection to a board of elections that may or may not be appointed by. Yeah. Oh, it's controlled by the okay. Democrats, the board of elections. And so, I mean, that, that's what I'm okay. saying about a, a very, very low bar. Again, this is this is North Carolina. Okay. Wait a minute. I have a question. Isn't there a clerk in Hawaii who can help prove that you're eligible? <laughs> well, I have a question. Is that not challengeable on constitutional grounds, given how incredibly gray that is in terms of directly countering the whole concept of innocent until proven guilty? The well, I mean, I think Ed was right in the sense that the, the it's up to the feds to um, it, it's up to the feds to decide who is a candidate for federal election or not. But that's not but how it works. It might not matter because. Yeah. Look at what they did last year in the lead up to, to, the, to the Trump Biden election. They went to all the courts. They changed the rules. They had secretaries of state changing rules, you know, flouting the Constitution. So what's to stop a state board of elections from handing down a ruling saying he's in he should be, uh, you know, ineligible. And it's September of this year. And if, if anything, at a minimum, it's going to put something in the mind of voters that this person is an insurrectionist, right? 
And it just could be another tactic that they're using that way to avoid a catastrophe. The other thing that's pointed out again in this Washington Post article um, that talks about it was that when the um, Senate and the House of Representatives gave out medals to the Capitol Police um, for their service during the January 6th riots, the medal resolution said that the officers risked their lives against, quote, a mob of insurrectionists, unquote. Now, I don't see how this affects Madison Cawthorn, but again, preponderance of the evidence is such a really low standard that if they can say, well, Cawthorn encouraged the mob of insurrectionists, which have been, you know, and it's, it's an insurrection that Senate and the House of the U.S. have officially uh, described it in an official document as an insurrection. I mean, you can see how a, a crafty lawyer can get around this. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that it, it, this is a much more difficult thing for Cawthorn that I think anybody gives credit to. Well, I think Mark Elias is that kind of crafty lawyer and he has put a lot of thought into it and he made it clear. He sent out a tweet saying this is coming. He's gonna challenge about 140 Republicans who are going to be on the ballot. So uh, this is just the opening salvo. There are going to be another 139 or so of these challenges coming down the pike. Wow. And here when Ed Powell is saying only in North Carolina is it going to be really dangerous, but you're right. They can just muck up the works and even that will have an effect. You know, I get a kick out of McCarthy out there saying, when we take over, we're going to get rid of Schiff and Swalwell and all these other people. Why am I not putting my money on the, on that? I hope we get rid of McCarthy. <laughs> exactly. But I, I don't see the Republicans ever standing and, for something that they pledge or, or mm. ever taking any kind of real action. So and, and, going, back to what, that, going back to what Ed Masler said about um, the, the Republicans on the ground, I think, are beginning to realize our leaders aren't going to do anything. It's, it's, it's until we learn to play like the Democrats play. I don't, I don't think we're going to have an opposition that can make any headway. And I don't mean, well, I was going to say, I don't mean illegality, <laughs> but then Ed brought up on, on Facebook to me, uh, you know, they they do that stuff all the time. <laughs> yes, they do. So I, I think it's, I think, I think on the ground, Republicans are beginning to realize we can't just go to work and make a living anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, Chris, it's funny. We sort of have a tagline on Liberty Block. It's a point I've been trying to make for many years. People say, you know, I just don't have time for this. And I, the tagline was sort of, if you don't work against the government now, you're going to be working for them later. That people don't have a choice about being involved in politics. If you're not involved in politics, they are going to take everything from you. Exactly. And our problem, well, we don't- I mean, rant. yeah, that's true. But I think part that, the reason for that is because the, the Republican party is not doing its job. And, and part of me sort of thinks that the Republican party is, is sort of flirting with being the Whig party of the 1850s. You know, the, the, major, issues of, the major issue of the day in the 1850s was slavery. And to a lesser extent, the, the tariff issue and the Whigs were just 
wishy-washy on both of them. They, they, the, the Whigs wouldn't take a firm position and they wouldn't fight for anything. And eventually it led to the, the formation of the Republican Party in 1856. And I don't know that we're ready for a third party here yet, um, but uh, that's certainly a possibility. I, I think that the Republican Party is, is really damaging itself. And, and I think going back to what happened with Ted Cruz, I mean, Ted Cruz is sort of, he's, he's, he's the most, you know, he's got a lot of gravitas for the Republican Party. And when he discredits himself, he's doing a lot of damage, not just to himself, but I think to the Republican Party as a whole. Uh, what the, what, you know, when, whether and when a third party is going to just rise out of the, you know, out of the ashes, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that it went, the Republican Party was formed I guess it was formed in 1854 and the first candidate was 1856. Uh, but things happened really fast back then. I don't doubt that they can happen, can't happen just as fast today. Um, Laser, since you're joining us from Ukraine, and I know it's kind of late out there, um, just okay. wondering if there's anything you wanted to comment on from your uh, Eastern war zone point of view. In terms of what's happening out here? If you want, I don't know. Oh, well, at the moment, truthfully, nobody has a clue. That's nobody anywhere. Nobody knows. Uh, the State Department officially released a statement telling Americans not to travel to Ukraine. I saw that. And my first thought was, well, it's a good thing I don't listen to anything the federal government says anyway. So I'll be here. I'm sure that's a sanitized version of what you were thinking. I, <laughs> I'm going to plead some sort of a fifth over here. Okay. And, but you're uh, saying you're not seeing... Any tremendous amounts of activity that suggests they're about to go to war? No. Uh, on my end now, granted, it might be different on, on the side of this whole affair that's not under the control of the Ukrainian government. I'm under the control of the Ukrainian government. I'm, I'm in what everybody calls Ukraine. So over here, a little bit of, of heavy weapons movement here and there, maybe a touch more than normal. There's always some. Uh, there are normal rotations wherein heavy weapons rotate out and new weapons and personnel rotate in. And I don't really know their schedule for that, but it's a pretty regular thing. We're seeing a little bit more than usual. We're seeing certain pieces of artillery that we don't usually see, but nothing huge, nothing overwhelming. It could be that they're doing it and we're missing it, but I mean, I, I haven't really seen too much new. Any news or inside information on the Russian response to what's going on in Kazakhstan? Uh, not really. Just what's what's kind of of in the news. I wouldn't be privy to anything there. I've been following the story somewhat. I know that Kazakhstan, the government formally requested Russia's intervention, which yep. obviously Russia was more than happy to very quickly provide. Whether or not it ends up fully blowing up, I think will I think that probably will change the face of what happens in Ukraine, only because this is a little bit cooler at the moment generally over the last few years, whereas if Kazakhstan keeps building the way it's going right now, it's going to be an all-out civil war, and it won't be for a piece of territory. It's going to be to overthrow the existing government. It's going to be a proper civil war if this goes on. So I think if that does happen, that might draw away a lot of Russian attention. I, I don't know if the people of Kazakhstan are ready for that or if eventually they'll step aside, considering that government forces in Kazakhstan are using live ammunition on protesters. That might convince people not to protest or it'll convince people to blow up the government buildings. I don't know, but I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on that because I think that ultimately will affect what develops here. 
Let me ask you a question. How able are you at the moment and how long will it take you to be able to absorb media in Russian? Uh, I can absorb some. Uh, so for starters, anything in print is very easy to translate. And even if Internet Translators or Google Translate does a pretty poor job, you can usually get most of the gist. And if something's really oddly translated, I'll, I'll just read the original Russian. And I can usually figure out what they're saying. TV, radio is a little bit harder for me just because, A, they speak quickly and, B, they tend to speak at, you know, figure a, a 10th grade level of Russian, which is fully beyond my Russian. So it's I can't really follow any media like that. But I, I do read a lot of uh, both Russian and Ukrainian news sources pretty much every day. I saw I saw some news stories this week from Ukraine, and it looks like it looks like it's sort of in a holding pattern, but not in a. I mean, almost like like a truce holding pattern, like they're just waiting to start the war a little bit later. Um, I saw bellicose words from uh, Blinken, Anthony Blinken, um, you know, basically daring the Russians to, to do anything uh, that there would be consequences or I forget exactly how he put it. Um, and and I just I, I don't know if, if Ukraine is connected directly to Kazakhstan, um, the way you're sort of suggesting that they'll have a direct relationship. But. Um, you know, from, from the American side or from where I'm sitting here in the United States, it seems to me like neither one of those fights is ours. Um, you know, I, I, you know, when I was looking into the Kazakhstan situation over the last couple of days, I, I kept thinking about, you know, when, when should we intervene, you know, or, or even offer aid and assistance in, in, in another country's civil war. And I, and I was thinking about, you know, the, uh, I forget what they called it, the, the, the replica of the Statue of Liberty that they had at uh, Tiananmen Square. And I was thinking, you know, if, if, if one side in one of these battles shows some sort of fidelity to American or Western values and shows some sort of understanding of, of the kind of individual rights that we have and enjoy in, in, in our part of the world, then maybe it's, it's in our interest to try and help them. But, um, you know, another theme that I've, I've, you know, repeated on this show is that you know, liberty is just not something that can be part of a welfare program. We can't spread it on the, you know, based on the U.S. military. We can't spread it by, you know, mailing or emailing the U.S. Constitution around the globe. People have to figure it out themselves and people have to be willing to fight for it themselves. And, and really, that's a lesson that Americans themselves are going to need to understand because that's the only way we're going to get out of this COVID tyranny that we're dealing with right now. We're going to have to fight our way out of it. And hopefully it won't be with bullets, but uh, it's not going to be because we can comply our way out of it and beg and plead and, and get judicial orders to, to get us out. We're going to have to confront, you know, I think not just we, everybody has to confront an evil, forceful enemy and, you know, and, and understand what, what liberty in, in the Lockean Jeffersonian sense means and be willing to fight for it. And until they are, I don't see how we have a, a bone, you know, a dog in, in the fight on either side. Laser, one more question since Ed brought up COVID. Yeah. What is going on COVID-wise over there? Uh, it's, it's similar to most of the rest of the world at this point, I think. Um, so the hospitals are overrun. You've got hundreds of thousands of kids that are of course, uh, everyone's dead. Wait a minute, it's 750 million people in the United States alone, right? What's up? We're the 750 million people in the United States alone have been affected. 
Is that so? According to Justice Breyer. Yes. Well, and all if you include all fifty-seven states, it's doable. It's possible, yes. I uh, no, it's similar restrictions to everywhere else. Everything is open officially. If you wanna, if you're in a red zone, so they've divided the country into a billion zones uh, by oblast. And if you're in a red zone, then you have to provide a vaccination card to go into any restaurants or any anything else. Realistically, especially where I live in the east. Uh, nobody gives a crap about the government at all. So they'll all have signs on the door that say you need a mask and a vaccine. I have been asked to show evidence of a vaccine once in my town. And I mean, this rule has been going on for months. And one time I had to produce a, a vaccine card. Nobody actually cares about crap. Out in the West, interestingly, in Lviv, when I went out there a couple months ago, in Lviv, I would say about 70% of places did ask you to show a vaccine card. And I don't know if that's more Ukrainian versus the Donbass, which is pretty leave us alone. I don't know if it's because they're on the border of a couple other European countries. And so they're getting just a, a constant influx of people from the Czech Republic, from Hungary, from Austria, from Poland. And those people are anticipating that. I couldn't tell you exactly why but there's definitely a different attitude about this from the Eastern edge to the Western edge. Now where I am, the rules exist, but fully nobody cares. And are they on two vaxes or three or four or five? Here they're still in the process of getting people vaccinated the first time around. I know that where I work, they are, they're not mandating anything yet officially, but they're pseudo mandating a vaccine. Uh, and they've now decided that if you have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you will not be considered fully vaccinated. So you will need to get a follow-up of something. This is despite the fact that they provided us with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, but it turns out that in all the studies coming out now that show a massive reduction in whatever efficacy there is from the vaccines after five to six months. Apparently the Johnson and Johnson, you know, this is a bright outlook on it. If you're to believe these numbers, but even at, at best, they're saying after six months, the Johnson and Johnson has a 13% efficacy, which is, you know, nothing. Are you following Israel? I know they sort of opened up, even though they're like on their 12th vaccine. Hey, Fizzreel, get four. it right. It's Fizzreel, P-F-I-S-R-A. Is it Fizzreel or Fizzreel? Fizzreel, yeah, Fizzreel. Yeah. I but, mean, but either way, they're on, their, they're on their fourth vaccine. The science for it is nowhere to be found, of course, but nobody cares anymore. Hey, there was a prominent epidemiologist in Israel who were like, you guys are crazy, and published it because in a fairly, fairly prominent um a publication. I, I, I think the, I think the walls are crumbling. I really do. I, I've said this last week, but I'm beginning to think that the walls are crumbling. I mean, not in New Jersey, not well, in New York, not in California, but in real life, I think the walls are crumbling. Well, it's interesting because uh, speaking of Pfizer, their CEO was on TV this week, pretty much dialing back the whole idea of another jab another booster apparently well, they have another the first two didn't work uh well he didn't do that <laughs> yeah that's how i heard it uh well i i didn't see the entire interview i saw some quotes 
from the all he said he said that it it probably kept he said it probably kept people out of the hospital and it probably prevented some deaths but it clearly didn't work it's it doesn't he said it clearly doesn't prevent transmission of infection yeah he said that he he was clearly um, laying the groundwork for there not being a fourth jab, but apparently they also have another drug in the pipeline that the other companies don't. So that might play into that Didn't a little bit. Clamp down on masks or something this week, Murphy. Uh, I was going to get to Murphy uh, at the end, but uh, oh, I, I, I think the WHO is also rolling back or dialing back on the idea of another jab. So there's some cracks in the dam there for sure on, on, the, uh, on the shots. And See, clearly- here's, here's my problem. And I think that this is ultimately the single largest issue in the world across the board. And namely, the fact is that nowadays actions don't have consequences. And that applies to every field, every realm, actions don't have consequences. If actions had consequences, if they come out now and say that actually masks don't do anything and we don't need them, every single person who put their signature on a paper mandating them should be dragged through the streets, keel hauled around the harbor, and hanged. Period. You're going Period. soft, laser. I know, because I'm, <laughs> I'm in a public forum, and so I'm doing this as gently as possible. I'm not bringing in crows. I'm not talking about sticks and stones and knives. I'm... That is the gentle no helicopter rides. I I'm open to it, but they're really expensive to run. The fact is that if somebody makes a mandate like this, if somebody, you know, mandates that, that all these restaurants have to be closed, despite every study having anything to do with restaurants saying at utmost one to 2% of transmission occurred in restaurants. How are we not hanging these people? Because if I walked into your chain of four restaurants and I chased you out with a gun and told you that you can't run your business until you lost everything you've worked for for the last 20 years, I would go to jail for a very long time. In a lot of states, if I, th- I do that, I think- you are fully within your legal right to shoot me in the head. So how are we not hanging these people? All right. Now you're getting back on, on track there, Laser. <laughs> well, by the way, this you weren't here. The still me. No, we did speak about this, that there is no accountability for this. And by the way, what we said in the beginning is if it's correct, what Veritas is putting out there, it's so frightening that we possibly believe the ramifications. If that paper is real, if that paper is real, it, it, it simply has to be the straw that breaks the camel's back for an outlaw revolution. If the people at the top actually knew this, from day one, which if that paper is real, they did, then literally the only answer is is scorched earth. But we don't have the guts anymore. So Chris, I want to ask you, you're in Pennsylvania. I'm not in a big city, I believe. What's the COVID situation there? Um, I'm currently, once again, on a two-week work-at-home uh, situation until the 17th. I had to run into the office today. Um, I was told it's probably going to be lengthened again for us to work from home beyond the 17th. Is that by business or by government? My, my particular business. Um, I don't know. I don't know if the governor 
actually did something in regards to that and my employer is following suit. I'm not sure which way it goes. Um, I don't know offhand. Mm -hmm. And mask wearing, how common is that? Mandatory. Not very, and not very anymore. Okay. We even just had a uh, an episode just a week or so ago. One of my coworkers caught it, and everyone. Well, I had to go into the office today briefly, and there were a couple people there, and they're not wearing masks. So, I did want to point out uh, Pennsylvania is where I grew up, but um, someone published a, a report the other day. Um, at, of what percentage of all deaths were in nursing homes, COVID-related deaths or whatever, what percentage were in nursing homes? And Pennsylvania came in number two behind Ohio uh, with 79.5% uh, of their COVID deaths occurring in nursing homes uh, under like 80% for Ohio. And it just made me wonder why Obama, uh, Obama why Biden didn't choose the Ohio a state health commissioner for his uh, deputy secretary of health uh, and instead uh, choose the Pennsylvania one because obviously Pennsylvania's state health commissioner only was second most deadly of the health commissioners in the United States. Uh, I gotta say, I, I, I think I know the answer to that one because the, the Ohio one was probably a straight white male and the Pennsylvania one was a transgender. That's true. That's true. Good old Rachel Levine. Um, might have big shoes to fill, really, when she leaves. Well, yeah, it's because they're like a size 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anybody want to comment before we close out for the day on this letting non-citizens vote in New York City and what this means and is this going to spread? Well, didn't but we all not. see this coming 15 years ago? Of course it's going to spread. Exactly right, Laser. I mean, mm. this is the whole point of what the motor voter bill that Clinton signed in 1993 was. We just It took them 28 years or 29 years to get there, but they're there now, and that's the whole goal, is to allow non-citizens to vote. It's to... it's the, the Democrat Party understands that they can't change minds, so they have to change the electorate. Period. There is a. Um, Yaron Brooks says that's not happening. No, no, Yaron is. Uh, yeah, he, he's an expert. Uh, you notice that Yaron rhymes with moron. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, before the the whole scale sort of industrial cheating that happened in the twenty election, um, industrial cheating have, has happened in in local elections. You know, going back to the. 1830s, 1840s, um, but uh, you know, not not in a in a national election. A num number of one of the things that uh, people did would be to vote vote multiple times, um, where they go from precinct to precinct and and vote in all of them. And, and that's certainly something that that did happen and does happen. And one of the ways to fight this, of course, is what's known as voter ID, where you show your um, show your driver's license or whatever uh, ID card and you that they let you vote after that. And everybody is, you know, on the right is in favor of voter ID. And I'm certain, certainly I am. 
But there was a case, and I forget the name of it, where some state decided that they wanted you to show your identification, including proof of citizenship, to register. And I forget the case, but I, I remember the Supreme Court uh, throwing that out as, as a violation of the it makes too much sense amendment. Um, and that's kind of where we are now in a lot of these states that are handing out driver's licenses and to non-citizens because the motor voter law exactly. combined with the inability for states, even if they want to, not that they do, but inability to determine citizenship is just going to mean that this, you know, everybody gets to vote that's being formalized in New York is essentially informal everywhere else. You know, I mean, it's just- Exactly, even if you have else. voter ID, the way IDs are given out nowadays, even in red states, it's impossible to, even the ID can be fraudulent and you can't, there's no way for the state to, to be able to put any check in place. When I just did my, um, renewed my driver's license, they said, you want me to send this over to the, um, you know, uh, voter rolls. And I said, sure, save me a trip. Um, now in that particular thing, since I was going for a real ID, I, um, I had my passport there and as part of the identification showed them. Um, but you didn't have to go for a real ID. You could get a regular ID and, and uh, they would have asked the same question, you know? Not just would have, they were required by the motor voter law to ask To you. do that, yeah, and, and when, or maybe just do it, you know, without even asking. Uh, the guy I, I got was probably conscientious, but I do, I live in the suburbs. So um, one never knows what goes on in the cities. Smart move. Okay, before we wrap up, let's give everybody, everybody a chance to talk about what we didn't talk about. We'll start with our guest, Chris. Uh, I think I think we're in big trouble with the nationalization of elections, although I don't know that's going to go through. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know if they can twist enough arms to get that done. Um, and, and like I said before, I think we can't just sit back anymore. There's, we, we have to start doing what the left does and fighting on the ground. And it, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, how do you get people to do that? Keep talking. Talk, talk, talk. Right, but as how much do you, as humanly possible. Sometimes you're only preaching to the choir. How do we get the non-choir people in? I, I try to, on my own, talk to people that I know are kind of on the fringes, and I try to bring them in on my own. So I try not to just do choir preaching. Um... As for other solutions, I'm, that's something I've been asking myself for quite a long time. Yep. Well, uh, one interesting nugget um, uh, with respect to uh, the nationalization of elections, that bill, is the fact that Biden came out, I think yesterday, publicly stating he was for getting rid of the filibuster. And uh, 
you know, it clearly sending a signal to Mansion and um, who's the other uh, cinema, right? Cinema, cinema. That uh, the green light is there to to get rid of it. Um, but of course, these these are the uh, protectors of democracy, you know, <laughs> who uh, now want to get rid of the filibuster and just try to jam through everything that they they want. Pretty interesting. Well, I, I have two things, but I'll, I'll try and be quick. Uh, one was, uh, as I as I said, sort of if we're the baseline, and then you know somebody like Tucker is three to six months behind us, and then you know everybody else is three to six months behind that. There is a third level of ignorance in this, and that is um, that is people are full two years behind, and uh, they are the Supreme Court of the United States because. <laughs> The wise Latina and her colleagues, uh, Breyer and um, Kagan, as well as some of the conservatives are, were, were so blissfully ignorant about everything having to do with COVID and the vaccines and the data um, that, that even in the current media blackout, they were completely and utterly uh, humiliated and made fun of on the interwebs. My favorite uh, being the Babylon Bee, who, uh, whose article said that, uh, said that um, the, uh, the testimony was, was halted briefly as Sotomayor had the gavel stuck up her nose again. I mean, and if that isn't uh, just basically summarizing the fact that these people are all blithering idiots. I don't know what uh, was. So I do, um, I, I do think we all really ought to note how stupid the Supreme Court justices are, and not just stupid, but I mean, they are, obviously they passed the bar, which was hard, um, but really willfully and deliberately ignorant about what's going on in the world. Um, which is just, you know, sometimes it's, it's shocking uh, to think that here these guys control every aspect of our lives. And I, I, I wanna remind everyone of um, what Michael Crichton called the Gel Gelman am amnesia. And the, the story goes that uh, Mary Gelman, who was a physicist would, would uh, you know, read something in the newspaper about physics, which he knows about, which he knew about, and would find that almost everything in that article was completely wrong. And then he would move on to the next page and read an article about, you know, Ukraine or, or Kazakhstan and, and think, oh, that's interesting, completely forgetting the fact that the same people he, uh, on the page before, um, was castigating as not knowing anything about the subject they're writing about or now writing about some other subject. And I, I do think that uh, we get that when we look at the Supreme Court um, with the exception of Justice Thomas, who's an actual human being, um, that they're so ignorant about this, you know, what are all the other things that they rule on routinely that they are completely and utterly ignorant about? And I think the answer is pretty much all of them. Wasn't one of the justices, was it Brian who said, I've had my clerks working on this for many hours or something and then said that statement? Yeah, I mean, he's, I think that's right. Yeah, he's crazy. The second one is the, the purge of the military um, 
of anyone who's uh, against the vaccines. Um, if you're young and healthy, like you should be in the military, uh, you don't need a vaccine. And this is above and beyond the fact that they don't work. I mean, I think we can pretty much say definitively now that the vaccines don't work at all, um, that the uh, morbidity and mortality uh, from the vaccine uh, uh, goes up for the first few weeks, then uh, comes down below, you know, below zero, and it, it's helpful for a month or two, and then goes back up above zero. And if you integrate across time, it's, um, it's, a, it's above zero. Uh, it, and you don't have to go out very far for it to be above zero, meaning the vaccines cause more deaths than they save. So anyone in the military who has the least amount of spare time, which is very few of them, and have read up on it, knows that the vaccines don't work. And in fact, the vaccines themselves can be quite deadly uh, to people, uh, especially fit young men and they don't wanna take it. So they are being uh, ruthlessly suppressed from the military and being replaced by, you know, transgender black females or whatever the, it is that uh, the Marines and the army want to uh, fight the war, hoping of course, that the Chinese will merely laugh themselves to death on the battlefield. Um, and I'm not so sure this, the wokeness and the, the destruction that this is coming for our military, you know, isn't uh, isn't deliberately. That is, uh, uh, the wokeness is deliberately deliberate, and the vaccines deliberate. But the fact that they know this is going to run all of the American patriots out of the military, I think that's probably deliberate too. So I think I'm, you know Ed Maslish convinced me of that several shows ago, but I now believe that totally. This is all on purpose. Purge the military and the police force of anybody who's even somewhat conservative. By the way, well, I, I think that, um, you know, Ed brings up a good point. I think the one thing that the pro-vaccine crowd hangs their hat on is they keep telling us, well, if you take it, you're not gonna get as seriously ill and you might not die. Well, we need to take that one head on and any data and information that we do have that proves otherwise needs to be fed to that uh, neutral or <laughs> uh, segment that uh, Chris was talking about that can be persuadable. Uh, so I just want to touch on a couple of things real quick. One is COVID related. I know a lot of us follow Eric, um, Alex Berenson anyway, but um, he had an interesting nugget this week about uh, some information he's been fed from hospital systems anonymously about the, um, the increase in um, COVID vaccine-related injuries and deaths that are happening. Um, and according to what he reported, they're looking at a fourfold to more than tenfold increase in these incidents, vaccine-related injuries and deaths. And that kind of mirrors what's being seen in the VAR system. So while, you know, prior to this information being out there and people like us you know, warning of the dangers of the vaccines, um, you know, pointing to the VAERS system hasn't been enough. Well, now there's anonymous information being reported from, from hospitals that are uh, exposing just uh, how extensive some of these problems are. 
Uh, the other thing is my home state in New Jersey, where the legislature, I guess to their credit, wasn't going to give Phil Murphy an extension on emergency powers. But being the nice little fascist he is, uh, Phil Murphy, a.k.a. Kim Jong-Phil, he decided to just declare a state of emergency again and reissue all his prior uh, executive orders. And by the way, I went back to check one of those. I'm not sure some of this information gets out there so easily. I just wanted to point it out real quick. What, one of the prior uh, executive orders was about creating a, an immunization system. And basically it states here that anybody born prior to January 1st, 1998 must currently affirmatively opt in. So that would be people my age. Whereas children born after January 1st, 1998 are automatically enrolled in the, in the registry immediately following birth, unless a parent or guardian provides a written request not to participate. So we talk a lot about some of these mandates, these restrictions and some of the craziness of COVID tyranny. And that's just one example of it. Um, you know, obviously in New Jersey, we have a, a pretty big majority of Democrats. So they weren't willing to give him the extension of the emergency powers. Maybe they'll start to show some fortitude and maybe take him on over the state of emergency. I don't know what that might entail. Maybe abuse of power. I think the Democrats call impeachment is called for that, right? Well, my story is sort of uh, an offshoot of what Ed Powell raised, and, and that is the Supreme Court argument last week. And, um, you know, we talked about it last week. We made, I made some predictions. I, I, I've already been wrong that I thought it was going to be decided by this weekend. And, and the fact that we're now at Wednesday, close of business, past close of business on Wednesday, and we still don't have a ruling from the Supreme Court, uh, to me, that's a real news story to, to me because... Uh, this went up there. I mean, the, the issue that they're dealing with is an emergency application. You know, the, the Sixth Circuit reversed the Fifth Circuit and uh, reinstated the, the, the OSHA mandate. And the plaintiffs that had previously been relying on the stay that the Fifth Circuit gave went and asked Justice Kavanaugh, who presides over emergency applications from the Sixth Circuit, uh, asked him for an emergency stay. And instead of just ruling, which these justices do routinely uh, on his own, he referred it to the whole court. Uh, I forget the exact date that that went up, but it was somewhere between the December 15th and 20th. Uh, and the court then granted oral argument and brief and, and set a briefing schedule for oral argument on January 7th, which was two and a half, almost three weeks later. And... Um, and now we're, we're almost a week later and we still don't have a, a ruling on it. And, you know, people's lives are, are hanging in the balance. I mean, people are being threatened with loss of jobs. They are being forced to, to, take, these, to take these shots. Uh, as I recall, I mean, I, I don't remember the details, but uh, they actually acknowledged during the argument on Friday that um, some of these mandates, some of the requirements, the mandates kicked in on Monday which is why I thought that for sure they were going to have a ruling by the end of the weekend, you know, early in the weekend, I thought. But uh, they are completely oblivious to the fact that millions of people's lives are hanging in the balance, waiting for these people to issue a goddamn ruling. 
you know, it, it, I mean, it's not. I, I, I tend to think that they can't come up with a majority for any one rationale. And, and you'd think that's an easy yes, no question, because they're all they're ruling on is a preliminary injunction. But I tend to think that they can't come up with a uh, with a five vote majority for some rationale and that they're probably going off and trying to cobble together something. I don't know. What do you Maybe think? So, I think but Roberts is trying to find a way to make it work. Maybe so. But I mean, it's not I mean. If the you can file an emergency application today and, and in theory have have argument by Friday. Right. Today's Wednesday. I mean, it, you can have an emergency. You know, if it's a real emergency, I mean, that's what an emergency is. You know, you ask for emergency relief. And, and you get you get a hearing right away and, and it might be, you know, maybe they issue, you know, a temporary stay a day or two later and they say, OK, we're going to do an expedited briefing schedule. OK, I mean, today is is January, what, uh, 12. So, I mean, if, if somebody if, if somebody filed an emergency application today and the court issued an emergency stay on the 13th or the 14th, it might be in, in place for, say, two weeks and they might say, OK, well, you know, brief, you know, the, the, the appealing party files a brief in seven days. The, the, the opposition brief do four days later, and then two days later for a reply. And then we do oral argument and boom, oh. and it moves. I mean, that's the whole point of an emergency. This is an emergency ap- application. And they're, they're going with such deliberate speed. I mean, you know, I can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm so pissed off by them. I'm, I'm embarrassed as a lawyer that these people are are ruin it you know they're they're totally callous to the to the fact that millions of people's of lives millions of lives are at stake here and and they are just i mean it's almost a month now since the emergency application was filed what are they doing what do they need to think about i mean ed i i don't doubt that you're i mean i don't say that you may well be right that they're trying to cobble together a rationale but how long does it take i mean these arguments are not new. I mean, they, they have to have been thinking about this even before the appeals came in. I mean, I get it that they're supposed to decide based on the, the briefing that comes in. But I mean, this is not some you know brand new issue that nobody had thought about before, you know, December 15th. Certainly I mean, the I- questions they asked had nothing to do with the briefs that they were given. They were all of those idiot questions were based on what they read in The Washington Post and saw on CNN. I, I'm just I'm I'm truly appalled that they that they have not issued a decision. I'm I'll be appalled if they don't grant the stay and 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 strike down the mandates. Uh, but separate and apart from how they ultimately rule, the fact that they are just dragging their feet and not issuing a ruling, it just it really infuriates me. I mean, how how dare they? I mean, the whole country is sitting here waiting for for these you know. We're waiting for a pope to be announced, you know, I mean, waiting for the white smoke to come out and and they just won't give it to us. I mean, maybe they didn't like being mocked in some of these press clippings and now they're looking down their noses at us and making us wait. Again, it's got to be that they've got to write. There's probably nine separate opinions that have to be written, circulated, rewritten, recirculated, rewritten and put together cobbled together into some sort of thing, you know, except for Sotomayor probably agrees with Kagan, you know, so eight separate opinions that they're trying to, you know, because they, they don't just publish the opinion and the dissent 
they publish the opinions and then they send them around. They publish the dissents, they send them around and it goes round and round so that they can poke at each other in, in a, in a way. Maybe that, that may be so, but I, I'm still, I'm thinking right now about, about the, uh, the application that was filed by Texas last year to challenge the, the change in voting restrictions in Pennsylvania, where they sued, where a bunch of states sued other states in the original case of the Supreme Court. And then they came out with this one paragraph opinion that didn't explain anything and said, well, Texas just doesn't have standing. Do we and, wonder, though, I mean, honestly, there's, there's got to be like internal rules about how the Supreme Court operates. And I have no idea whether anybody knows them. Huh? I have no idea whether they're, they're not, you know, in some ways secret. What if there's some rule that says if two justices object, you can't do a one paragraph decision? We don't know that. I don't know that. Maybe there's some obscurity that that, that, that the liberals are using in the rules, just like Harry Reid or Mitch McConnell to like drag things out because they want it dragged. I mean, who knows what goes on? Well, that's part of my whole point. I mean, the longer they drag it out, the closer to moot it becomes. I mean, people are going to have to decide whether, to, you know, maybe they're just going to take the shots. Maybe they're going to, you know, get fired. I mean, that's what this whole thing is all about. And the stay was lifted in the Sixth Circuit. That's the whole, I mean, God, it's making me so angry and I'm not even subject to it, you know? But I mean, people are people's lives hang in the balance on this. And the longer they wait, the, I mean, the more people are gonna be stuck making it, having to make the decision, which is precisely the point of this emergency application. I mean, it, 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 it's just, it's, un, it's unconscionable that they're taking this long to, to rule. I'm sorry. And it'll be unconscionable if they rule the wrong way. Don't get me wrong. But just delaying this long, separate and apart from how they rule, is just obscene. And it's a mockery of justice. This was an emergency application. Frankly, Kavanaugh should have just granted the stay. I mean, especially if it was going to take this long to figure out. I mean, the whole point of an emergency stay is to preserve the status quo so that when they issue their decision, the decision matters. If, if, if by the time they issue their decision, people have already done what they have to do and it's practically moot, then, then the whole point of the case was, was nothing. And it, it just, this is just, it's bad law, it's bad lawyering and, and the Supreme Court in, you know, maybe this is just an inside baseball thing as a lawyer, you know, maybe, maybe it's pissing me off more than it pisses off the general public. Um, maybe the general public thinks that, well, that's, the you know, like you said, you know, they have to circulate opinions and this is the way the court works. I mean, maybe that's the, what the average person thinks. But as a lawyer, this just beyond pisses me off. It really makes me angry. I think we, a, have we discussed complete, last week, you know, all the insti all the American institutions are falling in, in reputation one after another. Right. And I think the Supreme Court, I mean. What people who paid attention learned last week is that eight of the nine of them are boobs. Uh, you know, they're, they're buffoons. And I think that, that all of the Americans' institutions are, people are realizing it's like, this guy's been in charge of national infectious diseases for 40 years. He's an idiot, you know? Yeah. And the president of the United States is a demented pedophile and he, he, he yells and screams and doesn't know where he is. He's an idiot. And Mitch McConnell and 
and you know Schumer is they're they're both idiots and evil and you know it's evil and idiot and evil and idiot and they're all evil and idiots and every single one of the institution is falling and I I think it's all to the best really when people realize that all of these institutions are are manned um, people I suppose by the lowest of the low sociopaths and uh, and and the dumbest of midwits. Um, I, I think it's it's gives us even the smart ones. I mean, I think we were talking about Ted Cruz earlier. I mean, his his groveling is is borderline sociopathic. Yeah, I think people already do have an idea that they don't exactly look up the politicians and a lot of these people in government. You know, I mean, it's the same thing with this whole Fauci thing, even if it's a smoking gun. You know, a regular Joe isn't going to care about that, but. When they start realizing that the jab that they took is actually may have done permanent damage to their body and they don't know it yet. And when, when they find out, that's maybe when you're going to have a tipping point. Yeah. Well, Ed, I really, really enjoy your passion and rage, if you will, because I think that's what we absolutely need to answer what I asked Chris before. How do you convince people? And I think we need a lot more rage. Anyway, anybody else have anything else they'd like to close with real quick? I just want to thank you guys for having me. Anytime. Anytime, Anytime, Chris. Chris, We hope you come back. I'd like to. Miss Gina today. I need to up my game. I need to to kind of get on the foreign policy thing a little bit better. (laughs) We we don't do Um, a lot of foreign policy. We just have a guest from Ukraine. <laughs> I'm the unofficial foreign policy correspondent at least for the world. Well, we're official. East, what do you mean block. unofficial? Eastern yeah, foreign block. policy was important in the Cold War because the communists were over there. Right. But now well, the communists are, are here, so <laughs> that's true. Not as important. But, you know, uh, that's a, the whole thing about domestic terrorism. Now they're trying to define so we can charge people with domestic terrorism more well they're not trying to define it so that they can keep it vague and this comes back i remember writing a long thing and ranting about this i want to say it was the one signed in december of 2011 would be the ndaa that allowed for the indefinite detention without charge of any american citizen or foreigner even suspected of terrorism which is why I immediately said after January 6th is a reason they're throwing out the word terrorist again and again and again, because as long as they use the word terrorist, it is codified in federal law that they can take these people, they can lock them up anywhere in the world, they never have to charge them with any crime, and they can simply disappear them KGB style, old China style, they can disappear them. And this law has been on the books for more than a decade. Well, I'm sorry to take up time laser, but you know, the alt media that I read is fairly convinced that the Kazakhstan thing was a, a attempted color revolution by the CIA, uh, promoted by the CIA uh, to take Russia's um, attention off of y- Ukraine. What are you hearing? I'm not hearing anything. And two years ago, I'd have called you absolutely crazy. And now I can't call you crazy. Well, this is not my opinion. This is what I'm reading. I, I don't know. I'm just, I just, you know, you read, there are similarities in what happened. And there's some video that I saw of people driving up in small cars and putting 12 rifles on the ground to be picked up by people. That seems, that seems a little organized to me. I mean, 
the United States, it wouldn't happen because we all have the rifles anyway. But in a country like Kazakhstan, where you don't think AKs are as familiar with people having a car drive up and like put a bunch of rifles on the ground, um, that seems rather. I, again, I, I can't call you crazy. I wish I could call you crazy, oh. but nowadays with some of the things that we have, I don't remember. Somebody yeah. had said, I think one of you quoted it on the show maybe some weeks back, but somebody had said that it used to be the time between a, a conspiracy theory and reality was like 20 years and now it's like eight seconds or something along those lines. Yep. Uh, We're at a point where you know what? I say it wasn't the CIA. I can't say it wasn't the CIA because at this point, I don't put anything past anybody. So who knows? If Ed's crazy, then he becomes crazy Eddie. And I know laser that I'm not sure if you know about that, but the rest of us older guys would know. Uh, His prices <laughs> were insane. You know uh, how many, how much stuff I bought at Crazy Eddie's? Oh my guys, God. this is turning anti-Semitic. I'm going to have to stop it. <laughs> I bought so much stuff at Crazy Eddie's, man. Oh. I believe he was a Syrian Jew, if I'm not mistaken. But boy, is that a blast from the past. That would explain the prices. A blast from the... <laughs> I'm not going to answer that one. All right, folks, we're going to close out for the evening. It was a fantastic... If, if I can sign off with one reference that just came to mind with... with can you what say it in Russian, say. please? I can't do it in Russian. But for those of you familiar with the show Scrubs, I, for a long time, one of... I have a huge problem in, in the realm of debate with people using logical fallacies, and people generally do unless they're actually trained in the skill of debate. And one of the ones that bothers me the most is the, the appeal to expertise because everyone says, well, my cousin's a doctor and he says this. And the appropriate response is your cousin's a podiatrist and couldn't count to blood pressure. I, it doesn't matter, right? Dr. Oz is a surgeon and he can replace your heart. But when he tells you that a coffee enema will cure your cancer, you should slap him in the face just like you would anybody else. So with Ed and especially Ed P where you were saying how you enjoyed Babylon B's bit on Sotomayor having the gavel stuck up her nose again. Uh, for those of you who watch the show Scrubs, one of my favorite lines in the history of television after uh, Dr. Cox, the attendant gets a very stupid answer from one of his interns is uh, I know you went to four years of university and four years of medical school. So I can safely assume you're at least eight. And that's all I know. And <laughs> That's kind of where we're at. I know you passed the bar, so I know you can be a lawyer, but I don't know if you know anything, and I don't know if you belong as a lawyer. All I know is that you are. That is the end of it. Uh, and I, I think people are starting to realize that. And it's, it's something that I, I've referenced that joke a lot because it's, it's very relevant in a lot of places. But that's the first thing I thought of when you said that Sotomayor was putting a gavel back up her nose. We, we can... We can... We've talked about this on the show in past episodes. We can talk about it going forward. But the, the left's goal is to, is to bootstrap their dictatorship on the rule of experts. They've been trying to do that with climate change for a long time, and they failed. But they seem to have succeeded on COVID. And that's, their, that's part of their, not just part, that's really a big, that's their game plan. So, I mean, you know, it's, and it's in the culture, like you said. And we, we, that's something we have to uproot and, and, and get rid of because um, it's poison. Yeah. And I mean, look, the method works. It's, it's brute force. It works in boxing, what they call bunches of punches. You just throw and throw and throw until something lands. It works in hacking where you can, you can brute force uh, 
crack passwords by simply literally having an algorithm or a program run through every single possible option. If you throw enough darts, one of them lands on the bullseye. It could take that's a year. Their, that's their strategy with lawfare. I mean, we talked about yep. the Madison Cawthorn thing. They know it's not an insurrection, but it's all BS. Is The more things they throw at us, something will stick. And whether the yep. court buys it and, and just gives them what they want, or if they just buy themselves time, either way, they win. That's their game plan. That's that's exactly right. And again, it's you since there's no restriction on how often they can do this, they can just do it a thousand times. It doesn't matter. Something well, the restriction, will- the restriction was that it was assumed by the founders and by every r- rational thinking person that disputes were good, were based in good faith dis- disagreements. And the left's disagreements are never good faith. It's always an attempt to try and exploit some friction in the system. That's that's what they do. And they try and cloak their their illegalities in some form of legality to to make us have to fight them in the courts or fight them in the in the, you know, uh, at the ballot box. They can't just come out and say we're staging a coup. They just do it in in a form that they that is cloaked in legality. And by the time we figured out what they're doing and we fight them, uh, they figure it's going to be too late. And that's what they're doing. I mean, sort of like what Khrushchev said about, you know, socialism is going to come here bit by bit, little by little, and one day we'll wake up with socialism. Um, that's that's what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. Brute force works. It's ugly. It's sloppy. It's simple, but it works. Okay. Specifically, right. our foreign correspondent. Wow, look at that. He's learning. That's my only word. You got a few more than that, we hope. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Okay, want to wish everybody a wonderful evening. We will see you back next Wednesday, four o'clock, hopefully with Gina back and healthy. And thank you very much. Please send feedback to EJSO at protonmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Everyone have a good week. I hope the new year's off to a good start. And Gina, get well soon. And Jody, we miss you. <laughs>